Well, again, good morning to you all. Let's turn to read in God's word to John's gospel, John chapter 3. We sang from the beginning of John's gospel, John 3, and now we're going to read from the end of that chapter at verse 22. If you have one of the pew Bibles, that's page 1066. At verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John, that's John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son. And has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. If you've ever been to a large museum, you'll know that there's a problem or a difficulty. You go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Tate or... You go to the Louvre in Paris, and there's just so much to see. This was brought home to me when a friend of mine came back from Paris and said, I went to the Louvre, and I saw all the artworks there. And he showed me his photos, and he showed me a photo of a, of a portrait. And I said, well, what's, what's that portrait? Why have you, it wasn't familiar to me. And he said, oh, that's the portrait that's next to the Mona Lisa. Then he showed me a sculpture. And again, the sculpture I didn't really, it wasn't recognizable to me. I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's the sculpture that's just next to the Venus de Milo. Now, I had seen the Mona Lisa, and I had seen the Venus de Milo, but I had never noticed these other works of art because my attention was attracted to these masterpieces. And very often in the Bible, we have the same problem. Because we're confronted with masterpieces, we're confronted with great scenes of beauty, and sometimes our attention can wander. So if you read John 3, you 
read the story of Nicodemus. You must be born again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You read through John 3, and before you know it, you're in John 4, and the woman at the well. And you can easily miss a section like this, because it's right in between two masterpieces, Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the woman at the well, and we can neglect this masterpiece of John's testimony concerning Jesus. We know that all scripture is God-breathed and is there for our instruction, for our edification, for training, for rebuking, for correcting in righteousness. And I'd like with you just for a few moments this morning to consider this last section of John chapter 3 because it teaches us valuable lessons of life and valuable spiritual lessons concerning Christ. And it gives us an example. Actually, it gives us two examples It gives us an example to avoid, and it gives us an example to emulate or to follow. And very often, that's what the Bible does. Now, we believe that the Bible is God's truth, but we don't believe that whatever you read in the Bible, you should do. Because many of the events or many of the incidents recorded in the Bible are there to warn us. Don't be like that. Don't speak like that. Don't live like that. Don't have that kind of attitude. And as we look at this last section of John 3, we begin with an example, with with a controversy, an example to be avoided. We have this scene of Jesus and John. John is baptizing, Jesus and his disciples, they're baptizing. And in verse 25, we're told an argument developed. Now, arguments are not a phenomenon of the 21st century. They've been there ever since time began, because where you get two or more people together, especially regarding things of importance, you'll have arguments, you'll have differences of opinion. You'll have one person saying one thing, another person saying another, and then a third person comes along with their own opinion. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, All subjects, all parts of the Bible are important, but certain parts are more important than others. Now imagine the scene. We have Jesus, we have John the Baptist. And in the midst of this scene of these two great figures, the last great figure of the Old Testament and the great figure of the New Testament, of the whole Bible, and in the midst of this scene, we have what we would describe as a pointless controversy, a meaningless argument about a particular subject that is of not great importance. Now, doesn't that speak to us of our own human nature, that sometimes we are more willing or eager to find fault, to criticize, to put down, to make ourselves look good, to make other people look bad? And and this scene is recorded for us to show us that these controversies are absolutely pointless. There's a passage in Paul's writing in Titus where Paul tells us, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. 
we have a tendency to focus on items that are secondary or not even secondary and to avoid those matters of primary importance. The ministry of John the Baptist was a ministry that pointed forward to Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was an inaugural ministry, inaugurating a new age. And in the midst of these profound developments, there was this discussion, debate, argument. How should we wash? Who should be washed? What manner of washing should be done? And you think, why waste your time and why waste your energy and why waste your effort? But if we're honest with ourselves, how much energy and how much effort and how much time do we waste over unprofitable arguments, over foolish controversies? And what's more, we see that it's not just a question about washing, ceremonial washing, but there's something else that's being revealed here. Because when they come to John, they come with this. They say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So it's not just what we would describe as a foolish or not very important argument, but there's something else here. There's jealousy. There's petty rivalry. There's that sense of party spirit. Imagine today you're in the city of Dundee, and here we have a large gathering of people, but there's a church down the road that's absolutely packed. And we think to ourselves, we've got empty seats here. They've got a full church. And we can begin to be envious. We can begin to have a sense of rivalry. We can begin to be critical. Oh, well, if their church is full and our church isn't, well, maybe that's because they're compromising their message. Maybe that's because they're, making, they're dumbing down their, their message. And, and we can become very critical. We can become very... Uh, contentious, we can have envy and jealousy and rivalry, and that's exactly what's happening here. John, you're the Baptist, but your popularity is now waning, and this new man who you have baptized and who you have spoken about, now everybody's flocking to him. Doesn't this remind us that the Bible speaks about real people, real lives, It's not an artificial book in the sense that it speaks about perfect people with perfect motivations, with genuine and with with, with heartfelt feelings. But we see ourselves so often in the pages of the Bible. And we can see our own jealousies, our own rivalries, our own critical spirit. So here this is recorded for us because it actually happened. And it's recorded for us, not to say this is an event in history, but to say this is an ongoing danger. This is an ongoing challenge. Don't be like this. Don't have that kind of contentious spirit. Don't, don't quarrel. Don't focus on small issues. Don't pick fights. And don't be jealous of other people's success. When you see a church thriving, when you see conversions taking place, maybe it's in our country, maybe it's in a different culture, do we rejoice with those who rejoice or do we find ourselves wondering, is this real? Is this genuine? Why is it happening there and why isn't it happening here? So that's the example to avoid. But then there's also an example to emulate There's a man who has proper priorities, a man who puts first things first and who focuses on the task at hand, and his name is John. And consistently throughout the gospel, 
we've been introduced to this man who knows clearly who he is and who he isn't. Knows clearly what he has come to do and what he has not come to do. And isn't that a balance that we need to seek in our own lives? We know by the grace of God who we are. We know by the grace of God what we can do. And by analogy, we also know who we aren't and what we can't do. John the Baptist knew that he had a particular ministry and a particular message and a particular type of baptism. But he knew that there was one coming. Between him and, and between the two of whom, there was no comparison. No comparison in terms of majesty, no comparison in terms of importance, and even no comparison in terms of baptism. A baptism of repentance versus a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you see, we need to have this kind of balance and these kind of priorities to know who we are, to know who Jesus is, to understand how we fit into that picture, because we can have a wrong sense of our own importance. We can think of ourselves too highly or too lowly. We can exalt ourselves or we can abase ourselves to the extent that I can't do anything. I'm no good at anything. I have no gifts. I have no talents. That attitude is not humility. That attitude is saying to God, you've made a mistake. You haven't given me gifts as you've promised. You haven't given me abilities as you've said. I'm one of the exceptions. I have no talents and no gifts. That doesn't honor God. But likewise, the person who says, I can do it all. I can speak, I can serve, I can witness, I can do physical, spiritual, emotional work. I can do everything, Lord. Well, again, that's a, a pride that Jesus warns us against of the person who exalts himself will expect to be humbled, whereas the person who genuinely humbles themselves, recognizing that all that they are, all that they have, all that they do, comes from God, and therefore they are returning those gifts to God. So here's a man, John, who has the right priority. Verse 27, John speaks. To this, John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. He's simply reminding his followers of what he had long said. He didn't hide his identity, he didn't hide his mission. And sometimes we need these reminders to know what we have already heard. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. John uses an illustration that's understandable then and now. Sometimes the language of the Bible can appear to be dated. The Bible is often set in an agricultural setting, and if you're not a farmer, sometimes the agricultural illustrations don't make all that much sense, or it's hard to understand. But this illustration can connect with us 21 centuries later, because we all know what a wedding looks like. If you've been married, you know what that's like, and if you haven't been married, most likely you've attended a wedding. Now, everybody who attends a wedding is special. You're a friend, you're a member of the family. And then within that group of people attending, there'll be some people who have particular roles. There'll be a minister who will marry the couple. There may be musicians who play instruments. There may be somebody who leads the singing. There'll be a best man. He has the rings. There'll be a maid of honor. And she'll be standing next to the bride holding the flowers. But all of these figures, though important, 
all the guests, though important, are insignificant compared to the couple, the bride and the bridegroom. They're the real stars of the show. Everyone else has a supporting role. Now, John realizes that he is in that category, that he is a supporting actor. He's not the lead. And he recognizes that that's exactly the way it should be. He recognizes who God is and who he is. And he realizes who Jesus is and how his life and work fits into that of Christ. Do you have that same type of understanding? Do you have that same priority? Because John can say this. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Do you have this sense of joy when you consider Jesus? Is there that? Again, this is not about personality. This is not about temperament because some of us can be more joyful or more happy by nature. Some can be more morose. But is there that connection with heart, mind, soul when you consider Jesus? When you consider who he is and what he did? And when you consider that there's something between the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and your own life and death and resurrection. And does that connection give you joy? Do you have a sense of joy in your heart that by the grace of God, by the goodness of God, that you and Jesus Christ are inextricably linked? John says, that joy is mine and is now complete. Does knowing Jesus give you joy in your life? Does knowing Jesus give you joy in your heart? Does, does that relationship with Christ inform all that you are and all that you do? And can you say with John, he must become greater and I must become less. That our desire as Christians is that we magnify Christ. We make him look bigger. We make him look better. All that we are and all that we do is to throw attention to him. I don't want people to say what a great guy you are. I don't want people to say what a great speaker you are. I don't want people to give me the attention or me the praise. And when you serve Jesus, you don't want people to say what a great servant, what a great witness, what a great man, what a great woman. Now, we want people to say what a great savior they serve. What a great message they preach. What a great gospel they live. And what a great Jesus they worship. That's our desire, that he is lifted up, that we are reduced in his sight. So John has the right priorities. He has the right understanding, and he can say, Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. And this controversy or this, this rivalry, which the disciples of John noted, is not to be condemned or criticized, but John is saying, what you see is exactly what should be happening. And then finally, what I'd like you to notice is that there is this sense of a matter of life and death. That there is something of such pivotal importance about what John is speaking about. That if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, because all that I've said up till now, you might say, well, that's fine for the Christian, I can understand what John is saying, that the Christian must become less, that Christ must become greater, but I haven't really connected to this Christ yet. I might be new to this gospel, I might be new to this church, but there's a message here for you. 
Because notice that John the Baptist is consistently pointing to Christ. Whether he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whether he says, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. This pointing to Christ is consistent. And think of John as a signpost. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. John is consistently pointing our attention, our minds, our hearts, our eyes to Jesus. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. That man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Maybe in the past you've been let down. People have made promises, people have made commitments, people have said, I will do this, I will commit to you, and maybe you have been disappointed, and maybe you have been lied to. That's the reality of life. We make promises that we don't mean, we make commitments that we don't keep. But there's something about God that is different from us. There's something about God, there's something about the truth of God, that whatever he says he means, and whatever he means he says. That he's completely honest, he's completely truthful, there's an integrity about God and an integrity about his word that you can take his word to the bank. We've been told this weekend that certain banks have had a problem. That they might not be able to process your checks, they might not be able to cash your checks, they might be disappointing you, letting you down. Not our God, and not his promise. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. We can sing he's got the whole world in his hands because he has the whole world in his hands. And you're part of that world. Your joys and your sorrows, your trials, your grief, your disappointments, he has everything in his hands. Why? Because he has ultimate power. He has ultimate authority. That means that he can deal with what you can't deal with. He can solve what you can't solve. He can fix what is broken. And John brings it all together. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever. No matter what your background might be, no matter what your life experience might be, no matter what your age and stage in life may be, whoever believes in the Son. It's not about ceremonial washing. It's not about one group increasing another group decreasing it's not about petty rivalries or jealousies it's about the son whose name is jesus believing in jesus is the key anything else is of secondary importance this is literally a matter of life and death and we see this on the news all the time people are told you must leave your house and you must leave it now don't take anything with you just get out there may be a fire approaching, there may be a natural disaster happening, and they are told, get out and get out now. And when you're told that, you realize that there are certain things that are important and certain things that are not important. Your wedding photographs, yes, are important. But your life and the life of your family is more important. So there's a matter of life and death. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. We may have different opinions of different subjects. We may differ on matters of secondary importance. But on this matter, there can be no disagreement. That there is life to be found in Jesus. Life that never ends. 
There is no other source of this life. There is no other option for this life. And you must be convinced and persuaded in mind and heart. And that your faith must rest on the Son. Because it is a matter of eternal life. Or it is a matter of eternal separation. Because God is angry. He's angry at human sin. He's angry at human injustice. He's angry at pain and suffering. He is not indifferent. He is not immoved. But he is intimately connected and intimately concerned. And the problem is, is that we are part of this problem. We are part of this human problem. And we need his divine solution. If we could fix our problems, we don't need a divine savior. If we could deal with earth's problems at earth's level, we don't need heaven's intervention. So the question this morning is, can you identify with John the Baptist of having the right priorities in life, of putting first things first? But can you identify and connect with the son who came from heaven, who came to earth, to give you life that will never end? Because if you do, then you have accepted this matter of life that he offers to you freely and fully. Dr. Johnson, 200 years ago, said this. He said, depend upon it, sir, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. And if you really do understand that the gospel is a message of life or death, then that will focus your mind and that will focus your heart, and you will find that those matters that don't really matter don't really matter. But Jesus does really matter. Who he is and what he did and what he says, that matters, of, that, that matters so much that our hearts and our minds and our lives must be devoted to him because his life was devoted to us. So John says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This reminds me of the words of 1 John chapter 5. This is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The gospel is a message of life, a message of eternal life, and it's free for the taking. So may God give you the grace to freely accept what he is freely giving. Let us pray. Father, I give you thanks for each person here today. I give you thanks for the city of Dundee and the church of St. Peter's. And Lord, we give you thanks above all for Jesus Christ. Jesus who loved us so much that he came into this world. Jesus who loved us so much that he went to the cross to pay that ultimate price for our ultimate good. We give you thanks this day that in his sight we matter. Our troubles, our cares, our concerns are of importance to him. May we place him at the center of our lives. May we place him at the center of our hearts. And may we be able to testify with John the Baptist. May Jesus increase and may we decrease. And may the glory and the praise be yours through Jesus our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, 
at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.